boys welcome back episode 72 of the review podcast we are here it is monday may 17th and it is the first installment of many installments of the tbr playoff army podcast um it's going to happen on the review but we're planning on doing podcasts after every game and before every next game whatever you know the big deal game one happened on saturday night game two is happening in about two hours going to be recapping game one previewing game two because we can't be in the building tonight because it's in Washington and we live in New England. That's why we're doing a podcast two hours before the Bruins game. Seth, how's it going? I'm good. I am optimistic for this game. I was a little disappointed with the outcome of last game, obviously, as most of us in Boston were. Um, but I'm ready. I'm excited. Uh, we're doing all right. A little update on the shoulder. I am having surgery. So that's Ooh. set up for the first week in July. So that's kind of going to be the... Uh, vast majority of my time being spent in the end of the summer but other than that we're chilling nice nice that's uh that's an update yeah so yeah um all right let's let's just get right into it um we got a big game tonight a huge game game one we couldn't do a preview beforehand but we're just going to literally be doing podcasts after every game now we're going to be at like every game now, which is great news. Capacity is increasing by the second and hopefully knock on wood. If this team can make it deep, then we should have a hundred percent capacity soon. Um, but we're taking it day by day. The Bruins lost game one in overtime on Saturday night. I was pissed. Initial thoughts on just how the game went. I mean, I was disappointed, obviously, as most people in Boston were. I think the word that I used was disgusted, actually, while I was watching the game. And I mean, it's not that I think that the team played bad. I just don't like that we lost to Craig Anderson. The dude's 40 years old. I think I think disgraceful might have been the other word that I used just because, you know, there's no excuse for us to not win that game. They're on their third string goaltender. We're going into overtime. Like we need to win that game. I thought that Tuca did not deserve blame for the second two goals, but that first goal was horrendous. And that, that was really the one that kind of killed us in the end. Yeah. Um, I, I think talking about Tuca, I think the expectations for him from a Boston Bruins fan standpoint are very high. I think everybody's expecting a lot from Tukarask, especially after the whole leave the bubble last year. I think he's looking to redeem himself because I was talking about this with Carp. You know, he's getting up there in numbers at a certain point. You're either going to win or you're going to be known as one of the goalies who forever could never get it done. Uh, he had a phenomenal 2019 playoff run, and I think everyone's expecting that Tuca. So when I look at his performance in game one, I'm saying, all right, he did not lose us that game, but he didn't win it either. And he didn't put the team in a position to win the game. And I think that the difference between that Tuca and the 2019 Tuca was 2019 Tuca was winning us games. He was clearly putting the team in a position to win games. He didn't let anything past him. He, he was on his game, standing on his head night in, night out. He was putting the Bruins in position to win games. I, I He just kind of looked like he was out there. And that's been my biggest issue with Rask is that it just doesn't look like he's, he's all that enthusiastic about playing, which is, I don't know. I, I just, it doesn't look like he wants to be out there. He's lackadaisical. He comes out of his net 
way too much and acts like there's no one around him and that there's no pressure on him whatsoever. He throws the puck up the boards without looking. He like tries to stick handle with pressure on him with a four check on. And, you know, even guys like Ovier firing one timers from the high slot and he's hardly moving. He, he kind of gives it the old, you know, left hand glove wave. Hopefully it doesn't hit the net, make it look like I'm making an effort. I want to see that Tuca that we saw in 2019 who just didn't let anything past him. You know, Seth, I want to see that kid in the net who wouldn't take the test. You know, I need to see that goalie in the net for the Boston Bruins. I don't want this Tuca Rask who's like, oh, whatever, saying that these games don't matter, that it's like an exhibition. If that's the case, I'm fine with starting Swayman. Because that kid is showing me an effort that he wants to be out there, that he's standing on his head, that he would literally take take a, a puck to the throat for this team to win. I just don't see that from Tuka. So that's my issue. And yeah, we're saying this after one game in 2019, the Bruins dropped the first game to the Maple Leafs four to one, came back and went to game seven in the cup final. Am I worried? No. Do I think Tuka can turn it on? Yes. But I would be concerned if it doesn't happen tonight or on Wednesday. That's my take on Rask. So my one thing with Rask is I don't think that, you know, when you mention the the lofty expectations, the reason why people have lofty expectations for Rask is because he always turns it on come playoff time. Mm-hmm. People forget the only reason really why we even made it to the Stanley Cup in 2013 and lost to the Blackhawks was because he got us there. Yeah. If it wasn't for how well Tuca played in 2013, we never would have sniffed the final just wouldn't happen. And so I think that that's part of the issue where he's kind of established himself as this guy who can be streaky in the regular season. But I mean, you know, he did win a Vesna before, right? So obviously he's been able to put it together for a full season, but most of the time he's a fairly streaky regular season guy, but he always turns it on for playoffs. So I think there's a certain level of expectation that we have for him. The thing that bothers me with Tuca is like, and you know, maybe I'm a little bit off here, but even as someone who you know didn't grow up playing hockey, so might not necessarily know all of the fundamentals, I feel like one of the big fundamentals is keeping your glove up, right? Because it's yeah. always, and I, I think about the short amount of time that I played goalie in soccer. They always taught us to keep our hands up most of the time because it's a lot easier to bring your hand down than it is to bring your hand up, right? So unless someone's going to be really close and you need to kind of block something on the ground, you keep your hands up as much as possible. And so when I think about that first goal, it to me looked like his glove was almost touching the ice. Right. And to and you know, maybe he was trying to keep his side pinned so that he could, he didn't create a gap in between his arm and his, um, and the side of his body. But to me, I feel like if he had just brought his, you know, glove up to, you know, around his chest level, he would have been able to make a save on that goal. And it's a completely different outlook on the game. And I think that's the thing that I always complain about with Tuka. I feel like his glove is down all the time. He's awful at saving pucks, high glove side. So I, I need him to be better from that standpoint. That's really my only issue with Tuka. Other than that, I thought there were a lot of saves, you know, I feel like game one, he made all of the saves that you expect every goaltender to make, but I don't know that we ever really saw other than maybe once or twice, one of those like Tuca signature goals where you're like, holy crap. And everyone starts going to, you know, right. Like, I don't think that's we had my issue. Game one. 
that's the that's when it boils down to the like he's not winning us games, he's not losing his games. He was making the saves that you expect every goalie to make. Like he was making the saves that he had to. But then you got to go that extra mile. That Wilson goal shouldn't go in. I mean, yeah, I, t- I understand that it's really hard to save a tipped puck, especially when it changes direction, especially when it changes direction off of your own player. But I've seen Tukarask adjust to net front tips like no other goalie ever has in the NHL. So I think that excuse, to be frank, is is bull to say, like, I saw a lot of people like, oh, there's nothing he could do about those tips. But there is. I've seen him do it before. That game winning goal hit him right in the chest. So, yes, it changed direction. And he was he was anticipating the shot to go one way. And at the last second, it changed and went the other way. But if you're Duke Rask, if you're that caliber goaltender in the playoffs, I don't care if if you are anticipating a shot going to your blocker side, and then all of a sudden it switches and comes back to the middle. If it hits you in the chest, you got to keep that puck out of the net. You just have to. I think the only goal that he's off the hook for is the um, Brendan Dillon goal that everyone said was Ovechkin's goal, but just wasn't. The one that went off Lazan's stick, there was nothing Tuka could do about that one. Literally nothing. It was out of his – It was de- he was on the puck. He had the angle and it was at the very last second deflected so far out of his reach that any sort of adjustment wouldn't wouldn't have been able to get to that puck in time. So that one's on Lazan. His positioning was poor against Ovechkin. He led Ovechkin into the inside. He set a screen on Tuka and then he tipped the puck into his own net. That's not on Tuka, but I think the other two are. And that's where I have my issue. It's like, all right. We can sit here and try and make excuses for him. But at the end of the day, we all know that like he's got to make these saves. And yes, we'll move to this. The top six should have been better because if you're if you're going to win a playoff hockey game against the Washington Capitals, you have to score more than two goals. Like that's just a given. You have to expect to be scoring at least three or four goals. You don't always have to do it, but you have to be ready. The Bruins just couldn't get anything going in the top six, which was shocking because the last time we were on this podcast talking about the Bruins, I was concerned about the depth of the bottom six and the bottom six played phenomenal the other night and the top six were nowhere to be found. I thought so too. And that's the funny thing is I actually, you know, one of my buddies sent me a text and he was like, I don't know why, but I don't really like the bottom six. I was like, what, like, what are we talking about here? Like, I, I think he was being one of those Boston fans who like the second something starts going wrong, they automatically want to like overhaul everything. And, you know, yeah. like the whole fire the coach thing, like, you know, like, I think that's just what he was being. But, you know, I agree with you. I thought that that we needed more out of the top line. I mean, Martian had a single shot on goal. And look, I get that he wants to be a more pass first guy than he has been, you know, in his career. And I get that he led the team in goals and assists, but we need him to be a goal scorer. I need, you know, I I don't know what year he had most of his goals in, but I need, you know, 2011 Brad Marchand was not concerned about getting his teammates involved. I think 2011 Brad Marchand was a little bit more concerned about getting shots on. And I, you know, I miss, I miss like, 2012 to 2014 Brad Martian that was getting suspended like three games a year because he was doing <laughs> things where he was like getting into those dirty areas and pissing people off. I, I need Brad Martian to start pissing people off, not getting suspended, but scoring goals. I need that Brad Martian back. Am I the only one who thinks that he hasn't? I mean, I know that he has on paper, 
but in the big games, am I the only one who's like thinks he's been MIA this year as as of late? Because I've really like, especially I think you and I are more tuned in on it when we're betting on him. But it but it seems like like on the power play that first line, I think it's on everybody on Poshnark too. Like in these big games, they're they're struggling almost. Like every little thing that they do is a struggle, even to just get pucks to the net, even to just enter the offensive zone. It just seems like it's not as fluid as it once was. Like we talk about this being the perfection line. I'd put it on everyone too, not just Marchand. It it doesn't seem like it's it was as easy as it was for them last year, as it was for them in 2019. I, am I the only one that thinks that way? I mean, the big thing that I see with them is it, feels like they're all trying to get the other guy involved and like they're trying to make sure that all their teammates get their numbers right like you know and is trying to make sure that pasta gets his goals um i'm trying to find the box score from game one but so did any of them have points in that game I don't think so, right? Or maybe um, on the Richie goal, because that was a power play goal. And on the Richie goal. Um, Potentially, Posternock sent that to the net. But I think you're you, you're hitting the nail right on the head. I think Cassidy said that too after the game. It's like, just too much is being is going on. You know, they're, they're trying to do too much. They're trying to make that extra pass where you hear that a lot in hockey. For the other side of the argument, like teams aren't making that extra pass, that they're one move away, they're one pass away, they're one shot away, they're one step away, but they're not getting to that point. It seems like this perfection line is overdoing it, where they're one less shot away, they're one less pass away, they're one less dangle away, one less hit away, one less breakout away. You know, like they're, it seems like they're overcompensating, and I think they need to simplify their games because the three of them together, when the game is simplified, that's when they open the ice up. And, and it looks like a very complex offense that they're running just because they're so talented as individuals that it, the the line chemistry comes naturally. But it seems like they're trying to generate that line chemistry by overcompensating. And that's the issue. That's why they couldn't get anything going. We should not have problems with this Washington team stacked up against our first line. That was arguably one of the one of the better lines in hockey in the last five years. Why is it such a struggle? They're doing too much. That's my analysis of it. Well, and I think the the bigger thing is that that the the top line, right, that perfection line, had seven shots. Six of them came from Pasta. So basically, what I'm seeing is we know that um, Bergeron's a pass first guy, but now that Martian is trying to be a pass first guy, they're basically putting all of the load on Pasta. And all, you know, Pasta did have an assist. You were right on that. He did. I think he did take the shot um, that Richie tipped in. Um, But Pasta was even. Bergeron was an even plus minus. And so was Martian. In fact, they were three of five guys on the team that ended up even during game one. And it just feels like Bergeron and Martian are both passing just to pasta and trying to get him to generate the offense when they're way better as a group. And the thing that I think is really, you know, probably in the back of their minds is you look at the playoff run 
in 2018, I think. It was either 2017 or 2018 when they lost to Tampa. And in that playoffs, they did not win a single game in which someone of Bergeron, Pasta, and Marchand didn't record a point. So if yeah. none of those guys got a point, they didn't win the game. And so yeah. that, I think, is in the back of their minds of they feel this pressure that they need to produce offensively. Otherwise, the team can't win. But in reality, we have four lines that are able to score, right? Because the second line of Hall, Krejci, and who the heck's on the, uh, and Smith, right? That we know that they can score. They didn't have any points um, in the game, but we know that they can score, right? We obviously know the perfection line can score. Yeah. The third line, DeBrusque was, was DeBrusque on the third or the fourth, technically? Fourth. He was on the fourth. Well, Richie had a point, right? It was, on, it was on the power play, sure, but that's at least production from someone on the third line. And then DeBrusque and Lazar both had a point in the game, yeah. right? DeBrusque scored and Lazar, it looks like, had an assist. So we're getting scoring production from the bottom six. We can get scoring production from the second line. We just need to drill into these top line guys of, hey, there is no pressure for you guys. Just go out and play hockey. Do what you do best. Everyone else can now carry their own weight. You guys don't have to pull the rest of the team along with you anymore. So just chill. Yeah. Just relax. Go out. Play some hockey. Yeah, That's all they have to do. I agree. You mentioned that third line that I want to talk about for a second. I couldn't have been a... <laughs> I couldn't have been a more avid, not anti that third line guy. I hated that third line. And it, no, people, it wasn't because Jake DeBrusque was on the fourth line. That third line just doesn't work together. Those three of Richie, Coyle, and Corrali does not work together. Yeah. That, 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 did, that should never work. Those three don't do anything. Like I, I like... The third and fourth lines historically on the Bruins have been good at complementing each other. And I think the fourth line kind of is doing that right now. The fourth line is accomplishing that. You have Lazar, which is kind of a – he's an all-around guy, right? Curtis right. Lazar has a little bit of everything. He has that goal-scoring ability. He's got good sense. He's got good hands. He's got ridiculous speed. He's got just that go. You've got Jake DeBrusque, who's a little more of a finesse goal scorer. Jake DeBrusque is good at getting in the corners and, and, you know, getting into those dirty areas and coming out with the puck. And he's a good possession guy. But I wouldn't peg Jake DeBrusque as like a, a you know, a, a body guy. He's not a physical player. He's not really a fourth line grinder kind of guy. Let's remember early on in his career, he was a first, second liner on this team. He's now playing right. on the fourth line. So he has definitely fallen from grace, but he is not a fourth line guy. He's playing on the Bruins fourth line, which will probably change tonight um, because he had such an amazing game last night or two nights ago. But uh, but he's not like a physical guy. And then you have Wagner on that line, who is a physical guy. And Wagner can score goals every now and then. Like, I'm not discrediting his goal scoring ability, but Wagner is definitely a physical player. He's good at getting into those areas. He's good at laying the body. He's good at separating guys from the puck. 
That fourth line, I think that's the perfect combination right now. And of course, I think there are players that are interchangeable. I think Wagner could move up. I think Lazar could move up. I think DeBrus could move up. Any of the three, I think, are capable to play on the third line, you know, and beyond. But that's a perfect example of of the complementary hockey that that line is bringing to the table. I feel like the players on the third line all have the same thing going for them and and aren't filling in the gaps in each other's games. I think that Coyle, Richie, and Corrali are all physical players. I don't see a finesse goal. I don't see a goal scorer on that line, first of all. Well, Richie, Richie <laughs> scored a lot of goals this year. A lot of them yes, were on the power. He scored a lot of a lot of garbage power play goals, and I'm not discrediting it, but he is not a right, goal yeah. scorer. But there, there, yeah, there's a difference between being a guy who scores goals and being a goal. He's categorized as a goal scorer. Yes, like, he's LeBron a guy that can score goals. Can score points, but he's not considered to be a scorer, right? When people think of the best scorers in basketball, we don't think of LeBron James as being a scorer because he's a pass right. first guy, right? That's not like Richie's game is being a physical guy. His game right. is not scoring. He's just happened to get a lot on the score sheet this yes. year. I just I just think that all three of those guys are are kind of identical players in that sense where Charlie Coyle can score goals. He did it a lot in 2019, especially during that cup run. Corrali can score goals. Richie can score goals. But they're all so similar that there are definitely gaps in their games that no one else is filling void in. Look at that. Look at that second line. Okay, I think that they're uh, no. Let's use the fourth line, actually, because the second line is perfect right now. Uh, that fourth line, like I said, Jake DeBrusque, not a physical player. He he has, you know, size to him and he can throw the body around, but he's not a physical player. That's where Chris Wagner comes in and kind of fills in that gap. He brings that physical presence. He's always an F1. He's getting in on that puck where Jake DeBrusque kind of sags high in the zone while Wagner goes and fishes the puck out. Lazar provides that support and DeBrusque is, is open in the slot. That's where you're complimenting your game. Richie, Corrali, and Coyle were too flat on Saturday night. They were coming in three across. They just they they weren't playing good systematic hockey. I think you have to break that line up. If it were me, I would I would take Coyle off of that line. I disagree. I would put Corrali on the fourth. I would swap Corrali and Lazar. I see. I thought about that, but I feel like Lazar is like way too like he he's. He's kind of essential to that fourth group. See, that's, that's fair. I don't want to break those three up on the fourth line. So, but here, here's my issue, right? Lazar was 75% in the faceoff dot game one. Corrali was 57%, right? Yeah. So I don't, and you know, Coyle was 0 for 1, right? So you can't really like take that with a grain of salt. Right? That 0%. Be, well, yeah, 0%, but like with one, one try, like who cares, right? And right. he's also been playing winger for the past like month, right? So it's not like yeah. he's had all those, you know, reps in. But I don't really want to take either one of those guys, right? Like I don't want to shift. And if someone played center game one, I don't want them not playing center game two. We were 60% in the dot. You know how hard it is to lose a game when you're 60% in the dot, when you dominate possession that much? That's crazy. Now, granted, you know, the Lazar being 75% skews it a little bit, and then Bergeron being 63% skews it slightly um, just because of how many faceoffs he takes. But really, when you look at it, the only guys that were negative were, you know, 
it, it was Smith who took one, Coyle who also took one, and then Hall and Marshan were both 50% on two faceoffs, bringing it down. All of the guys who actually played center, the worst was Corrali at 57%. So if all of our actual centers are above 57% right now, I don't want them out of the faceoff, dog. Yeah. See, see, I, I like the argument. Oh, I just, I just, <laughs> you know, when you say like a word with like an S and an I in it and your MacBook thinks that you're talking to it because the, I'm not going to say it because it's going to pop back up again, but the right. just did that. Yes. Yeah. I, I personally have not had that issue with my MacBook, but I understand the issue and I've seen plenty of people have that. Yeah. It just happened to me. So, um, I understand, I understand the argument where, okay, I think Sean Corrales is a fourth line center. Like, through and through, I think he's a fourth-line center. Yes, absolutely. I agree on that. But I also think Curtis Lazar is a fourth-line center. And I understand that he's winning more face That in, in game one, he won more face-offs than Sean Corrales. But I, I, this is my dilemma. I don't want to break up that fourth line. But I want to break up the third line. And, it, and it, I just looked at the projected lines for tonight. It doesn't look like they're changing anything. So take that, so take that as you will. See, my thing is, I want Richie on the third, and I want DeBrusque on the fourth, because I feel like DeBrusque scores way more when he's out there with that fourth line, because he feels like right. he can take the the scoring, like, the onus of the scoring, he feels like he can take it when he's on the fourth line, you know, because it, it drops the pressure, I think, a little bit on him. But then the issue is... Wagner on the, you know, if you were to put Wagner on the third and drop Coil to the fourth, you now have three left-handed guys on the third line, right? Because does Wagner shoot left or right? Right. Oh, he shoots right? Okay, then actually that might... So maybe you put DeBrusque left wing fourth with Lazar and Wagner... That is the line. Oh, no. With Lazar and Coyle. Coyle. And then you put Wagner on the third. Yeah, I think that the, the, it makes sense. It, right? No, it, it, it doesn't. But I think it just makes that fourth line worse is what it does. I don't. Yeah, it, it does. Because I think like Wagner and Coyle are kind of the same guy. Except Coyle's a lot better offensively. Yeah. I would say Wagner's better. I mean, okay. from a goal- I think Wagner. I think Wagner's a better all-around hockey player and makes your line better. I think Wagner's making the fourth line a lot better than Coyle is making the third line. Oh yeah, Wagner. I, yeah, I can. Yes, if you're gonna put it like that, but like if you drop Coyle to the fourth line, I think that fourth line gets vastly worse. The only player you could make an argument for moving up, and this is not biased, after game one is DeBrusque. You could, I pretty much think the only argument there is DeBrusque had such a good game that he has the ability to move up. And Bruce Cassidy said before game one, there will be opportunities for a guy like Jake DeBrusque to move up in the lineup, to move to the third line, to move to the second line, injury depending. The only argument that you can make is he had a great goal. He had X amount of shots. He was really ever Jake DeBrus played one of his better offensive games of the year. You could make the argument that you're going to move him up to the third line so that he's getting more playing time. But they rolled that fourth line a lot in that game. 
So I don't think playing time yeah. would be the issue. The Bruins seem to be taking the approach of if it ain't broke, don't fix it, where that line works so well together. They produced, they put points on the board, they put offensive pressure on in a fourth line spot where they really weren't expected to. And and we're not going to change it in the hopes that they'll do it again. And I think they will. Um, that line just to circle, great. just to circle back real quick to the Wagner versus Coyle offensive uh, debate. In sure. 358 games, Wagner has 63 points, 37 goals, and 26 assists. Uh, Charlie Coyle has 621 career games and has. 301 points, 115 goals, 186 assists. So Coyle is pretty much a half point per game player, and Wagner is less than a quarter point per game player. Right, yeah. I, I know that Charlie Coyle in his career has performed better offensively than Chris Wagner. I think that right now, if you were to move Coyle, like if you're going to look at the two of them, not just so I think, scores, like, I, agree I think that Chris Wagner is a better presence. I think that Wagner fits better on the fourth line. Because Wagner, I think, from a focus standpoint, is significantly more focused on momentum and physicality and being a good, just like solid, fundamental hockey player. I think that Coyle's mindset, while we all know that he's a very physical player, like he's a big dude, um, you know, 6'3", 220, he's an absolute horse out there. But yeah. he's definitely much more offensive minded, and that doesn't really fit with a fourth line. Right. And to, you know, circle back to what I was saying earlier, I think that moving Chris Wagner up wouldn't wouldn't really help. I think the only player that you can move moving to and Lazar up would fix the issue of complementing each other's games, well, because if you move Wagner up, that's just another physical presence. That I really like so, so, if you're looking for more offense that comes in the form of Jake DeBrusque. Right. But my thing with that is I like how DeBrusque is playing on the fourth line. Right. I don't th- I don't think they should make his, any changes. His his play has been so good on the fourth line that you can't move him up, but he's really the only guy who's played like he should move up. Yeah. So I'm just, kind of I'm kind of I, I wouldn't be shocked if it happened in, in the next few games, especially just the way that Cassie was talking. That third line is just kind of, you know, unless they unless they change their game I don't know. I think that you just don't have enough balance on that line, whereas you can look at the other lines and say that you have a good balance uh, of kind of a bunch of different aspects of being an offensive hockey player um, on the first line, on the second line, and on the fourth line. You don't have that on the third line. I think they're pretty identical players when you look at their games. And that's the issue is like, all right, they don't have a ton of speed on that line. They have a ton of physicality. They don't have a ton of goal scoring. They don't have a ton of finesse. They don't have a ton of, you know, hands play kind of you know moving on the go they're very physical they they play like a fourth line the fourth line is playing like a third line right now and the third line is playing like a fourth line that's my take on it is debrusque lazar and wagner in game one produced like a third line would be expected to and the third line was was more the physical line which is where you want your fourth line to be the fourth line is historically in hockey a physical, not expected to produce points, but expected to go and like ruffle some feathers and kind of, you know, put some pressure on the other team. That's what the third line is doing. And the fourth line was the one that was all over the place with shots, with with chances, with, you know, creating opportunities with a goal. 
with a game tying goal in the first period with a huge, they took the goalie out of the game. They took Vitek Vanacek out of the game. Granted, you're not shooting the puck at the net every time, hoping that the opposing goalie is going to, I don't even know what he did. Something to his I think he hurt his, his hip or his hamstring or something, stretching something out to like try to that. save the Brussels. Yeah, so you don't shoot the puck every time hoping for that to happen. But, hey, it's an added bonus when you can knock the starting goalie out of the game and score a game-tying goal in the same play. Right. Right. I so, anyway. <laughs> there is one big topic that we haven't discussed that isn't necessarily game-related, but is certainly Bruins-related. And that is that Governor Baker announced today that as of May 29th, every business is allowed to open up at full capacity. And it sounds like the city of Boston is going to stop there waiting three weeks after the Massachusetts thing. And they're just going to open up on May 29th. That's what the news said in the quick little thing that I saw today. So it sounds like and if this series goes seven games, it would end on May 27th. So May 27th is the latest, or May 28th, I think, is the latest that the first round can end, which means that we're probably going to be able, you know, whether or not the Garden actually does it is a different story, but based on Massachusetts rules and regulations, we are allowed to have a sellout crowd at the Garden for round two. Yes. Which would be insane. You know, I'm um, I'm getting reverse flashbacks to last March where we went from life completely open in one night to in a matter of 24 hours, we're all locked inside wearing masks and our lives completely changed. I think the reverse effect is happening a little quicker than the rest of us thought, where it went from like, okay, vaccines are being rolled out, whatever, but you're still going to have to wear a mask like inside and with like limited capacity to all of a sudden the CDC's like, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. To today, where Governor Baker said no masks at all, anywhere, indoors, outdoors, Fenway Park's going to full capacity, TD Garden's going to full capacity, C- City of Boston follows up with that a few hours later. I think it's happening a lot quicker than a lot of us anticipated, and I think we're going to be back to complete normal lives in like a month, which is, and I think, and you know, I'm saying that it was such a rapid change. You know, it's going to take a month for all of this to kick in. And obviously, you're still going to have your stragglers who are going to wear the masks for whatever. But I think you're going to see it like like you said, second round. We could have a packed house at the TD Garden. Like, God willing, that's what's going to happen. And if, you know, that can't happen, then Fenway Park, we can have a packed house, you know, God willing. So, yeah, absolutely. Right. Without saying too much about the outcome of this Bruins series, you know, I, I'm – thrilled especially as an active member uh of the playoff army um it's been fun going to these games but in the playoffs i miss 2019 you know you want that electricity you want that like energy in the building if we can go back to full capacity for a playoff run think about what that does to the team i know that there's fans in there now but listen they're still pumping crowd noise in so please if we can get full capacity in there with all these Bruins fans who have been cooped inside. I don't know where I'm pointing out there for, you know, the last year without in-person playoff hockey. Right. This is going to be a huge for this team, just a complete momentum boost. I'm all for it. I'd, you know, I'd be at the front of the, you know, line at the TD garden, waving my rally towel and whatever. And I will be when this happens. Um, but yeah, and we'll be there on Wednesday night and I'll be there on Friday night. So 
Right. Fuck with me. I mean, I'm I'm super excited too. Like, I cannot cannot wait for it to fill up. I am slightly apprehensive just because I feel like it's gonna be really weird to be in that big of a group of people all of a sudden after never being in a group of more than like, you know, obviously what is, you know, like we've been to games, right. And so there's like, what, like 5,000 people there, whatever it is. Yeah. So so that, you know, feels a certain, actually it's less than that. Isn't it? It's like 1800. Cause isn't it only like 10 or 12% something like that? It's it's like 2.5. Um, it it was a little, it was right over 2000 and then 25% is like two and a half, three. I think is that what it is? So, yeah. I mean, like obviously that's bigger, but like you're not really around that many people when you go to the game. So I think it's going to be a little bit nerve wracking to be in there. Yeah. And I also hope that they like, you know, if you do have to be in a group of 19,000 and all be together like that close, I would hope that they mandate the vaccine in order to go into the garden. Like, I feel like that would be the oh, safest. I hope they don't. <laughs> But I'm, I don't know, just from a safety standpoint, dude, like, and like, why do you yeah. care? Like, didn't you get your shots? Like, what, like, no. why do you care? Oh, I thought you did. Dude, I had COVID like not that long ago. <laughs> oh, cause Carp, I know that Carp got his. Yeah, but he like had to, I'm, I'm waiting it out. <laughs> gotcha. I mean, there's no, there's no point. <laughs> listen, yeah, I I, listen, I, I was, I was with you the whole way. I, I think it's fine. If we all go back and like, like that's been my mentality the whole time is like, all right, how let the people who want to go out, go out. So yeah, if you're, mean, you know, yeah. not to, because Seth, you know, you're my guy, you're in the army, but you know, don't, don't get a ticket if you don't want to, you know, come hang with the night. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know what you're getting yourself It's something where I've got to think about it too. Right. And I would never be like, like, I don't want to be that guy that is like advocating to be like, you didn't get the vaccine. So you don't get to have this opportunity of going to a playoff game. Cause I don't want to take that away from anybody, but there's also that group of people where it's like, you know, there are people who did get the vaccine for the sake of feeling safe. And, you know, if you don't, feel safe around people who don't have the vaccine and you're going, you know, it's, it's like this whole, what was the point of people getting the vaccine in the first place? If they're going to be exposed to people who didn't have the vaccine anyway, right? Like it's like a whole, and I, I would never advocate for, you know, like, I'm not going to sit here and say like, you know, you're an awful person if you don't get the vaccine, right? Like I think that people should get the vaccine, right? That's just my personal opinion based on the facts that have been presented to me. Like, I'm never going to say you're an awful person for not getting the vaccine. It's just I think you should. And I think that it's safer for people if everyone has it. Right. I, I get that. I'm of the belief that, you know, I think if they're going to open this up, I don't, you know, to 19,000, you know what you're getting yourself into if you're buying a ticket and going to that game. But also, I, you know, in 19,000, because we haven't been in, in groups of more than 10 for the most part for the last year sounds like a lot. But you got to remember that, like, once you're in there, you're not really all on top of each other. I, I, there are opportunities for you to be far apart. I think that this thing is definitely on the, the down trajectory in terms of numbers. I mean, Texas opened up fully. No masks. You know, Rangers games were at full capacity. Um, 
all of that, all the all the venues are opened up. They've had zero COVID deaths like since. New, yeah. Zero new COVID deaths since that Which rolled I out. Think, so it's working because you're letting right. people get back outside. You're letting people. You got to build up an immunity somehow. Right. That's well. The the thing with that is, I think that's less of a. Um, you know, I think that there are, there's some people who use that as a train of thought of, oh, it's okay to start opening up slash like, you know, COVID was a hoax type of thing, and it's more of a. I think they opened up. And people who were younger and felt like they weren't at risk of dying decided to go out. And the people who were at risk of dying just stayed in. Right. It goes back to what you were saying, where it was the, um, you know, let the people who want to expose themselves expose themselves. Right. Let let people go out if they want to go out. And I think that's more of a product of what happened there, where it's just you had all the people who, you know, didn't feel like they were super duper at danger for COVID um go out which the fact that no one's died has been amazing like that's great i think and yeah. that's a great sign of i think you know hopefully that means that either a a lot of those people have been you know vaccinated it's and won't get it or it means that b people aren't getting it but there are so many people who are vaccinated and so many people who have like antibodies and stuff that we're not transmitting it as much and so it's you know becoming safer right you, you know yeah. that hurt be able to like you know it's safer to go out even with people not getting it right yeah well i mean we'll cross that bridge when we get there we still got time we get we still got to make sure the bruins win this playoff series before we sign off because i do have to go pick up cam brown mr hockey goalie man um prediction for tonight on tbr you said four nothing bruins oh yeah big time (laughs) My, my thought on this is right so there were 92 hits in game one 51 of those came from the caps the caps are broken down already coming into this game from an injury standpoint ovechkin's literally played like one full game in the past month or something crazy like that like not even um i think kuznetsov is still out he just got out of covid protocol but i don't think he's supposed to play tonight similar with samsonov samsonov's out of the um, COVID protocol, but he's not playing tonight because they still need to ramp him up and get him into, you know, hockey shape. Yeah. And I just don't think that they can sustain that over a seven game series. And I think that, you know, especially in the first period, I think at one point they showed a stat in the first period where it was like caps hits in this period, 16 average hits per game throughout the regular season, 28, right? Like they were, and and when you watched, you could see that they were going out of their way to hit guys. Like with the Ovechkin hit up high on Krejci um, or on the faceoff dot, there were a couple other hits in there where I was like, wow, that guy, like, like clean, you know, the Ovechkin hit, I think on the replay looked worse than it actually was. And most of the hits that I saw, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, that's a dirty hit, but they were definitely hits that didn't have to get made. It felt like they were playing outside of themselves in an attempt to intimidate the Bruins. And you're not going to physically intimidate this Bruins team. Like there's not a single guy on this Bruins team aside from maybe Hall that is, you know, going to go out of his way to not make a physical play. 
like even pasta has started to be physical. And that's one of the big things with pasta that I don't think enough people are talking about how well defensively he's come along. Yeah. Cause there was that big thing. Like remember on behind the B when they did the um, Sagan trade and they had the discussion about it and they said how they just weren't thrilled with how Sagan was progressing defensively. Yes. I think they've remedied their development mistake with pasta. Yeah, because I there have been tons of times where I'm watching, and you know there are plays that like Bergeron would make, like on a three on one or three on two or two on one break, where Bergeron would skate hustle back and break up the play. I feel like I've seen Pasta do that a ton this year, and yes. that's something that you know I don't know that we've seen Sagan do. And so I feel like you know circle back to my point, right? Like I feel like defensively and physically, this team is so much better than almost any team that we've had here. And Bruin Taki's always been physical, right? You're not going to out-physical us. You know, great, they had 10 more hits technically than us, but we never backed down at that point. I don't think that the Capitals, from a stamina standpoint, can sustain that level of physicality. And so I think the Bruins are going to come out in this game. They're going to be pissed off because Craig Anderson stood on his head again in the playoffs against us after knocking us out in 2017. Right. So I think that they're going to come out with a vengeance. They're going to expose Craig Anderson and they're going to dominate. And that's why I said four nothing. I think Tuku's going to be pissed off. He's going to make every single save. He's going to have like 30 saves tonight. And he's going to have a couple that are insane on two on O's. Yeah, everything you said, I agree with. I think this is the Bruins game. I think this is a great spot for them to bounce back after a tough overtime loss, especially with the lineup that the Capitals are putting forth, especially with the lineup that the Bruins are putting forth. The one thing that I will say, and I think you're right about the physicality aspect of it, is that the Washington Capitals are going to run themselves too rampant and that they are going to bang themselves up, that they're not going to be able to survive this first round down the stretch because the Bruins just have more of a stamina and more of an agility. I do think it's too early to have that play a role in this game. I think they're going to come with that same play style they're gonna come hard they're gonna target our guys like you said that Ovechkin hit on Krejci there's no doubt in my mind that Ovechkin got off the bench and beelined it for David Krejci didn't matter what the play how the play was unfolding it was interference in my book he didn't have the puck uh and, and I think they were coming at our guys because they they knew that if they could get physical with us early that they could control the pace of play and they did the Bruins never let so I agree that is going to come back to bite them in the ass later on in the series. But I do think it's too early. And I think they are going to make the mistake of continuing with that play style and being physical. But I think the Bruins are going to find a way around it tonight. I said 3-1 on TBR, sticking with it, 3-1. I wanted to go for a low-scoring shutout by the Bruins, but I kind of agree with you. I think we're going to come out firing, like absolutely firing. My only, The only reason why I'm not going further then a two goal win is because I think the Capitals are still going to be physical. And I think that's going to impede our ability to, to put up like a four or a five spot. So I've got three, that's one. Fair. I think it's, I think it's gonna be a great game. Uh, like, okay. Aside from the Bruins, like our kind of playing Monday morning quarterback with the Bruins after game one, that was such a fun game to watch. Great hockey game. The first 10 minutes were unbelievable to watch. It was so physical. It was so fast paced, hardly any whistles. It was great hockey to watch. I think we're going to be in store for that all series long. Um, When we played them in 2012, every single game in the seven game series was separated by one goal. I don't think that's going to be the case this time around. I think the Bruins are going to beat them by two tonight. Um, They're going to cover the spread. 
big spread guys. I got the Bruins covering and uh, I got Tuca having a good game. I think I think he's, he's due for like a fluke goal. Um, he's always good for like one fluke, but I think that the offense is going to compensate for that. And they're going to put up three and they're going to beat the Capitals. We're heading back to Boston tied one, one. That's my guess. Love it. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. I am two minutes late to go pick up cam and that's my own damn fault. So yeah, game two in an hour and eight minutes, we will update all of you. We will be back with another episode to talk about what happened in game two and to preview game three. We will be in the building uh, for the home games. So let's just uh, let's let's just ride. You know, this uh, this team is legit. So let's just ride. It's playoff season. Nothing better. Seth, anything else? Nope, I'm good. I got nothing left to say. All right, boys. Go Bruins. Episode 72. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you for episode 73, hopefully with the series tied at one. Thank you all for listening.